Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Brethren in Christ, Laudato Jesus Christus. December Laudator. This is Timothy Flanders with the Meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. Happy to be joined by Gregory de Pippo from New Liturgical Movement. Gregory, it's great to meet you virtually. It's an honor to have you on the show. Very kind of you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so uh, Gregory is the editor-in-chief of newliturgicalmovement.com, which is an online journal which promotes the uh, all sorts of liturgical studies on all sorts of different fronts. Uh, it's it's a wonderful site. It's been running for, what, 10 years now, 20 years? Uh, it's 16. 16? Excellent. Yeah, it started in, in 17 in, in, on August 1st. So. And you took over as editor because the original founder and editor was someone else, but you took over at some point. I would, yeah. Right. So um, it was founded by a, a Canadian fellow named Sean Tribe, and he ran it from 2005 to 13. And then um, one of our longtime contributors took over as the editor for a couple of years. And so then I took over from him. Excellent. So I have been the editor, managing editor, and then editor since yeah, um, 2013. Excellent. Francis excellent. So you've had the Francis Pontificate as the run as your editor for this. Uh, almost, almost coterminous. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. Wonderful. Well, this is the we'll be talking today about the 1955 Holy Week controversy, the Pian reforms of Pius XII. This is a uh, somewhat of a conversation between uh, Gregory de Pippo and uh, Louis Tafari had another video that we we presented here. Jeff Kasman has a number of videos, one with DePippo and one with Tafari. So we'll two, be continuing. Actually. Two, okay, you've got two. two. two yeah, two of Tafari, right. Um, and so we'll be continuing this conversation. This apostolate is all about bringing Catholics together to debate and discuss relevant, important issues. This is one of the controversies that is debated and discussed. And so uh, Mr. DePippo will be providing some responses to some of the, uh, the assertions and claims of Tafari as well as any of his other uh, thoughts. He's been working on this as the editor of a new, new liturgical movement for many years. Um, so we're really happy to have you on and to talk about this. Um, so I'll link in the, for viewers, if you want to go back and look at all the other videos that have been recently done on this topic, uh, I will link all those in the description. And uh, I wanted to just start by asking you, to me, one of the most salient points that Tafari was bringing up was this, the, the very first thing he brought up to me was the the address of Archbishop Lefebvre when he was uh, working against some sort of set of a contest people among his ranks that he was opposing himself to his credit. Um, and he was moving on the principle that we cannot reject in any way any sort of liturgical promulgation by the Holy See or by any legitimate ecclesiastical authority on any basis whatsoever, unless it is on the basis of orthodoxy. If there's any sort of, um, so Archbishop Lefebvre obviously would would say that the Novus Ordo Mise, at least indirectly, promoted some sort of heretical teaching, at least indirectly, or at least by, by osmosis or whatever he would say, it would promote an undermining of the real present, for example, which is a dogma. So he would say this is a heretical in some sense. Whereas the 1955 Holy Week is not heretical, I've never heard anyone claim it was heretical in any way. Um, 
So therefore, we we must accept it. It's been promulgated by the Pope. That is the that was the sort of the standard principle here. So that to me is is seems to be one of the most salient points here because we do receive lit- liturgy ultimately from God through Moses and ultimately through Christ who fulfills Moses and institutes the, the mass and it's passed down and governed by the church. And so there's sort of a, we receive liturgy from revelation mediated through the church. Mm-hmm. And so what are your, what's your initial take on this, this sort of fundamental principle of liturgy and the limits of our disobedience as it were to this? Right. Okay. Um, first of all, well, okay. I am just an ordinary layman. I have no canonical obligations whatsoever to do anything other than, you know, the minimum of going to church on Sundays and holy days of obligations in terms of my strict obligations. Okay. So um, I am not in a position to either accept or reject the Holy Week reform or any other reform in any sort of meaningful canonical sense of the term. Um, I say the breviary according to 1941. And so I don't say the divine office uh, during Holy Week according to either the 55 or subsequent reforms. But I have no canonical obligation to do so, so it doesn't really mean very much. Um, my critique has never been about the viseity of what Pius Twelfth or John Twenty-Third or Paul VI did. Um, that is a question for canonists. I am, thank God, not a canonist. Um, and, you know, just... As, as Mr. Kasman very rightly observed when, when he and I were talking, it's just like, let's just get a bunch of them together and, and eventually, you know, we'll get all the opinions that we what we want out of them. So, you know, torture the code of canon law long enough and it will confess to anything. So, um, but we have never been required to say that the ref- any reform per se was good. And my critique has always been simply that the 1954 Holy Week is bad. So um, at the time that Pius X, for example, reformed the breviary in the early 1910s, one of the most prominent liturgists of the time um, made a critique, you know, it used to be that Lauds always ended with this group of three psalms. This is an almost universal custom of of Christian um, liturgy. And uh, this was taken out by the Pius X Forum. And um, Anton Baumstark, I believe it was, said that we can, you know, to the creators of the Pius X Reform, we can give the credit of taking out of the Roman breviary the one custom which we can say with absolute certainty was observed by our Lord himself when he attended services in the synagogue. Nobody at the time said, oh, you're rejecting Pius X's reform, wicked you, excommunication, blah, blah, blah. Okay. This was not the way this was done. So that, um, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm not really necessarily convinced that that critique is, is exact, but it was said. So, And nobody at the time said, oh, well, you know, you're a bad Catholic for saying this. So my critique is simply a literary one um, in terms of the change of the, of the text. Um, and, 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 you know, some of the changes in the rituals as it were. So it's not a question of rejecting or, or, or for me personally, it's not a question of rejecting or accepting. I'm not in a position to reject or accept it in any meaningful sense of the term. That being said, the premise of the 1955 reform is fundamentally the same as the premise of the 1969 reform. 
which is that for many centuries, the church had allowed the essence of the liturgy to be obscured by various overlays that came in in the Middle Ages um, through its own pastoral neglect, um, through various misunderstand historical misunderstandings. Finally, in the mid 20th century, committees of Italian academic liturgists have come along and seen the light. They have you know, recovered the essence and therefore they're going to now make changes that will bring us back to the true essence of the liturgy. This is the same script. It's just applied in you know, sort of a more limited way in 1955 than it is in 1969. So would you would you break that down to two? It seems like what I'm hearing you saying, there's two concepts. There's a one, there's a corruption theory. There's been mm -hmm. some sort of corruption all along the line. And then there's an antiquarianism or a res restoration of former forms. Sure. Uh, and that's the, the approach, the principle, the problem and the solution right there. Right. Yes. Both for 55 yes. and 69. Yes. So but and, and you know, I mean, if you read the in, it, so in and, and OK, so now I, I, we don't need to open up the Bonini can of worms okay it's 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 not that hugely important but he is undisputably the author of the official apology as it were for the reform that was published in the vatican's liturgy journal um he i'm sorry uh, he actually specified he wrote it together with a colleague named carlo braga um who was also later on very um important in the creation of the Novus Ordo. and um so they wrote the official apology for this reform. They say over and over again that you know, essential elements had been obscured by you know, long-standing medieval accretions. Um, and you notice how they always use, like, like, like the, you know, somebody comes along and adds something to liturgy, and if we like it, we call it an accretion. We use this very sort of unpleasant organic term, like you know, a, a crust or you know, something like a scab. And so, um, and then if we do like it, then we call it a you know, happy addition. So, so they talk about these accretions um, and, and, and specifically say that, you know, these accretions have obscured what is truly important about the Holy Week, uh, right? So, you know, with the, with the blessing of the palms, they say, well, you know, the essence of it is the gospel. So we really had to take out all of these prayers so we can get back to the essence. And you see, the, the, I mean, Luther himself could not have said it better that we see how the church allowed the essence of the right, the gospel to be obscured by all of its own prayers that it overlaid on top of it, obscuring the right. This is fundamentally the same apology that Luther and Cranmer made. And it's the same apology that they made for the Novus Ordo in 69. Yeah, you bring up the, the sacramentalizing of the palms. That's one of the things that seems conspicuous to me, because as I understand it, their rationale was that people were using these palms superstitiously or something like that. They were taking sure. the sacramentals and they were going excessive, which is a bad thing. We, we want to stop that. But their solution to stop that was to cut out, cut down all the prayers. And or at least I think they cut it down from like three, three sacramentalizing prayers to maybe one. No, from, that... from, no, from nine to one. Nine to one. Okay. Quite a cut, one. Cutting down. Okay. But I would add, but I would add something else to that. Okay. Is that the form that they reduced is itself a reduction of something which was much bigger once upon a time. 
um, which uh, a, a, a sort of reconstructed series, which which maybe doesn't necessarily rest on those most solid foundations, but it's certainly the case that we have, you know, books of the 10th century, which show these prayers for the um, for the blessing of the palms. They are vastly longer uh, than what we have in the pre-55 reform. Oh, so the wow. pre-55 reform is itself a reduction. So, but again, what you see here is exactly the same clericalist contempt for the faithful. We're sorry, you people just aren't smart enough to handle this, to understand the true essence of the meaning of these prayers. And, and obviously, in, you know, you're, you're just ineducable. So rather than put in the hard work to educate you, assuming that these superstitions exist, which maybe whatever, um, assuming that these things were, were real, well, we're not going to put in the effort to educate you about the real meaning of these prayers and the real sort of sacramental value of the palms, which is going to dramatically reduce the number of prayers. Okay, so, and you know, that, they, that's the palms in 55, and then it is the ashes and the candles in 69. Again, it's exactly the same principle. Yeah, I think for the, for the common lay folk, we, we certainly, you know, as a father, I think about sacramentals to protect my children from demonic forces. So it's always nice to have the prayers that yes. invoke the sacramentals against the demons sure. to have that, those graces. Yes, and, and I'll add one other thing, okay, is that this is in fact a, 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 an understanding of, of, of the meaning of the blessing, which has an extremely respectable pedigree because the, one of the absolute oldest versions of it that we have, it's, it's true, it's only one prayer. It's in a book called the Bobio Missal, which, which is itself a really, really complicated thing, which is you know, nobody really knows exactly what the Bobio Missal is. <laughs> so, but the blessing of palms in the Bobio Missal says exactly that. We're blessing this in order to you know, provide something that offers protection to the faithful. Um, that is that book is older than the oldest surviving sacramentary of the Roman Rite. Wow, that's interesting. Now, what what about the argument that essentially goes that? Uh, I mean, how do you distinguish this from a true organic or a true reform? Because, as you said, there has been a uh, there has been an the the three fifty five liturgy itself is itself a reduction. So there's been sort of an accepted reduction of some kind. Sure. Um, and certainly, like I think of the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, which itself is a reduction of uh, earlier liturgies like St. Basil or St. Yes. James. Right. So um, there is sort of certainly a precedent among the fathers. And St. Gregory obviously does it with the Roman Rite. Um, there is a precedent among the fathers to do some sort of reduction or simplification. So how do you distinguish that good or acceptable type with this corruption? Okay, so now I'm going to say something very controversial, but I've already said un-NLM, so it's okay. Organic development is simply not a useful category for thinking about how the liturgy changes. No liturgy has ever changed organically in its history. It simply is not a thing that exists. Organic organisms develop spontaneously and without a will. You plant a seed in the ground, it doesn't will to form, you know, a sprout, leaves, and then, you know, grow up and become a trunk and produce fruits, et cetera, et cetera. Every single change that has ever happened to the liturgy happens because someone willed it to happen. And in that sense, I don't think that organic development is, is at all a useful category for talking about how the liturgy changes. Therefore, I would simply analyze each individual change on its own merits and see 
what was changed and why was it changed? If we know um, why was it changed is kind of a problem in many ways because most of our liturgical texts were altered long before people thought about any of the idea of writing down why they did them. So we don't really know why they changed. Um, I, I shouldn't say, we, we often don't know why they changed. There's some where we can tell from, from, from you know, looking at other things. Um, so that being said, um, I don't think that the, 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 the question is, is and I don't say this is a criticism of you, Timothy, but, but the, the question isn't, isn't posed correctly. It's simply a question of analyzing the reform on its own terms, seeing whether the thing that was changed was changed for the better, and so, um, and, and its circumstances. So for example, in, in terms of the reduction of the prayers, um, the older versions that we have from roughly you know, 10th to beginning 11th century, where we have this massive collection, there's like 10 or 12 of them sometimes, they're, and they're very much longer, was created for monks uh, and by monks. So um, liturgy was what they did kind of full, on the full time basis. Um, and Palm Sunday was a grand solemnity uh, of, of the highest order. The version that we have in the 1955 books comes from the right of the papal chapel, which was the right of a group of very busy bureaucrats. So, I mean, necessary bureaucrats, but bureaucrats. So they created a shortened version um, of the liturgy so that they could, you know, do it in a, in a proper decorous manner. But at the same time, you know, then not have the whole day, the whole a week taken up by liturgical stuff so that they go about the rest of their business, which was, you know, vital for the church. And so um, I would say particularly with the blessing of the palms, it's, it's not so much a question of the reform of the prayers themselves. I don't think that was done well at all. But certainly the procession that we have in 1955 is, is dramatically reduced from the medieval sources. And it would have been a good thing to, to, to you know, do an investigation of the medieval sources. And, and restore some of the rituals that accompanied it. Instead, what they did is they took out all of the rituals that accompanied the procession itself. In 1955, um, the one thing that the papal chapel retained was the, you know, thing we take the, 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 the staff of the subdeacon, he could, you know, knock on the door to open up the church. Um, and that was the one ritual part of the procession, apart from just walking from one place to another, but it survived and they took that out. Uh, this is a, a you know, violent traducing of, of, of the content of the medieval sources. All of the medieval sources, as far back as we have them, have much more elaborate processions. Yeah, and th this is certainly, to, to me, the most conspicuous thing about the Holy Week reform is not in the minutiae of the prayers, because obviously those are very, very important. But sure. for the, for the ma main body of the faithful who attend some rites or all rites of the liturgy, for them, it's... For many faithful, it's these this pageantry, this this drama. Uh, that's why the processions are so big for the faithful. The knocking on the door. When I was Eastern Orthodox, I always that was the part in the Easter Vigil and the Greek rite. When mm -hmm. when the, the, the banging on the door is what, it was probably always my my favorite part of, of the uh, the whole Holy Week was just Absolutely. this banging on the door. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also the um, pageantry and drama of the fact that the 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 Holy Week, the Triduum, is in the morning. And tenebrae is at night, tenebrae, and then the, the candles go out. That's another right. big pageantry of the of the um the week. And so I want to ask you, what then is so if 
if we're not going to just say this is organic and this is not organic, we're going to say we're going to evaluate this particular change on its own merits. My question is, what what are the criteria where we can judge this or that change on its own merits? Um, so, for example, you could look at some of those pageantries. Like I think of the again, the the morning um, and the tenebrae. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you what are the criteria that you put into these this evaluation of whether it's good or bad? Well, I mean, that is a very complicated question. Um, I would say that if we're going to talk specifically about Tenebrae, for example, there is no question whatsoever that it was one of the most beloved rituals of the faithful. Uh, I have a friend who's a musicologist who pointed out once that he had in just in his studies, which are you know not definitive, nobody has studied every single piece of music that's ever written, but that in one, you know, I believe he said group of libraries. It was like, you know, a, a, several cathedrals within a sort of fairly small region in, in, in France. And in fact, 500 settings of the Tenebrae responsories within the libraries of these cathedrals. And so, wow. Now, so, um, so that in and of itself kind of indicates something about why Tenebrae was really important. Um, there was a and 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 what happened to it was of course that first of all it was moved to the morning so completely destroying the symbolism of it then they took out the thing about the candles and the thing about uh, the you know they, they took out the triangle where you extinguish the candles they took out the extinguishing of the candles on the altar and the noise making and, and all of that stuff um what this goes back to is a uh, 18th century french rationalist uh, a cleric of course called claude de Vere who was basically doing for the liturgy what other so-called rationalists, um, and, and sorry, I just got to add in parenthesis. I mean, has there ever been an intellectual movement in history that less deserved its name than rationalism? Yes, <laughs> the, the, the age of false reason, as Henry of, Sear calls it. Right, the or age the of I make up a thing. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. The age of I make up a thing and say, oh, that's rational, and so on. So, um, and, and, and so Claude de, La, Claude de Vere was basically applying to the liturgy the same criteria that, you know, so-called rationalist scholars were applying to the Bible to, to you know, demythologize it and, and explain away all of the miracles. And other scholars were applying to hagiographical texts and explaining away all the miracles. And so he was just explaining away all of the symbolism. And so he came up with this you know, grotesque theory that we use incense in church because the faithful stank. And it was the clergy's way of covering. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I am not kidding you. And so, wow. so he is the one who came up with this magnificently clever idea that the candles were extinguished over the course of uh, matins and laws of Tenebrae because the sun was rising and therefore they didn't need as much light. And he even goes too far as to say that the noise making is just the sound of the choir books being closed, you know, these enormous choir books in those days. But, and again, what this boils down to, of course, is exactly the same principle you see how the church for centuries and centuries was not understanding or paying attention to what it was doing in the liturgy. So it only retained these customs as kind of a blind, thoughtless conservatism. Um, and then ex post facto justified them by having these, um, you know, uh, 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 symbolic explanations of them. 
So great, now apply that to the hand candle that accompanies the book uh, of the bishop, which was own, obviously only necessary because the bishop was old and blind and the church wasn't well lit. And then afterwards, of course, we have electric lights and, and so we get rid of it. And so, I mean, you can, you can do this all day. You can apply it to all the symbolism and all of the customs and what you will get is something fairly similar to the Noah's Orco. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it's it's basically the same kind of corruption theory, antiquarianism, but it's yes. it's an added an added hubris because yes. it's I'm just going to make up something that was the changing of the color. Some of the bad scholarship that was going around in the 40s and 50s, yes. where people were just they were looking at the early church, and we don't have we just don't have a lot of documentation about the early church. There, sure. It's a very sparse period historically. We don't. There's not a lot of source documentation. We got archaeology. We got Eusebius, but it's pretty sparse. So people will basically look at it and then they look at sources later and they're kind of just guessing um, mm -hmm. as to what they might think might might be the case. People thought that uh, facing the people was what all the early church did Absolutely. back in the day. Absolutely. That's what Paul VI seems to have believed. Um, but Benedict XVI and Joseph Ratzinger, later scholarship disproved that. Um, yes. so, but can I add one yeah. thing also about yeah, the please. timing of the ceremony? Okay, which is that the, the timing of the Triduum ceremonies has become an extremely useful sort of red herring to justify other much, much more substantial changes. Um, because it is true that in antiquity, and we, you know, we have the sources that demonstrate this quite clearly, it is true that all three of the ceremonies of, the, you know, the main ceremony, of, of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday were celebrated in the evening. So the, re the restoration of Holy Thursday is a unique, is, 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 it's an authentic restoration. And so there is no custom of celebrating Holy, uh, of celebrating Good Friday as people now do in the early afternoon. The sources are all very clear. It was done in the later afternoon between you know known and and, and and vespers, so three o'clock is not wildly wrong, but it's always been associated with vespers, as it is in the Byzantine realm. Um, and in both of those cases, by the way, I have attended ceremonies in the Byzantine Church, which has a you know very healthy flexibility on these questions. Where it is pastorally useful to do so, they do them in the evening. Where it is pastorally useful to do so, they do them in the morning. And so um, I, I think Pius XII's biggest mistake in that regard was simply to impose a rule, which didn't necessarily, which is unfortunately kind of a habit with the Roman Church, which is to impose a rule in absolute terms where there didn't need to be an absolute one. That being said, the Easter Vigil is not, it was, was not historically a nighttime ceremony. That is another one of their mistakes. And so um, all of the sources say it was started in the evening as the sun was going down, you don't light a fire in, in, in a, you know, a pre-electric culture. You don't light a fire when the sun has been down for several hours. You light it when it's going down so, to prepare for the evening. The very first documentation we have about Holy Week in Jerusalem, this, 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 this um, nun who went to Jerusalem and saw all of these rites um, and, and, and describes them explicitly says the Easter Vigil started in afternoon. So this idea of doing it, the nighttime restoration is not a restoration at all. It, it's just, they just moved it from one wrong time to another. And the price that we paid for this was of course the loss of Tenebrae. 
Um, and what you see, what's really interesting is that, you know, there are many churches all over the world that wouldn't touch the missile of John the 23rd or Pius the fifth with a barge pole, but celebrate Tenebrae in some form or other, because it was a thing that was deeply rooted in the, in the popular, you know, devotion. Um, and I think it was, I, I would say it's extremely wrong to, 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 you know, sort of uproot that from the people. I, I thank God that it didn't work. Yeah, I've, even in my own uh, my own cathedral in my diocese, we there's still a, like a Novus Ordo version of the Tenebrae service. It's so ingrained among the people. Uh, mm -hmm. Here's a here's a question that that you just sort of alluded to that I've been thinking about, and that that's the sort of the post primum period, mm -hmm. which is where Pius V takes desperate times call for desperate measures. So he does an unprecedented act of the Holy See, which is imposing the Roman rite on everybody that's not. Uh, 200 years or older. And as you just said, um, you know, that I, I think we can, people, most people agree that that was necessary at the time, but I think you're, you're sort of alluding to what, what I I've come to think might be an unintended consequence of that, wherein the, the Roman sea is, so we've got uh, the, the hymns of urban, the eighth imposed on the breviary. We've mm -hmm. got the breviary of Pi the 10th. We've got the Holy Week of Pius the 11th or Pius the 12th, sorry, where it could, what if, what if instead of imposing on the faithful, just simply promulgating an optional right, like they did with the, with the breviary of Paul the third, uh, they could promulgate an optional right, which mm -hmm. a bishop could individually implement in, in his diocese if he so desired. Mm -hmm. And then one could see whether or not over a long period of time, whether or not that really was, as you say, that we could look at that reform to see if it really was going to work and be good for the faithful or not, instead of we tried it for a really tight, like a blink of an eye in church history, which is like five mm -hmm. years, you know, and then we impose it. You know, yes. Could that maybe be uh, a, an unintended consequence of sort of the post-Tridentine militant period of quo primum? Do you think that may have been a more effective approach? What do you think about that? So, uh, okay, so I would first of all qualify just 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 to do justice to Pius V. Pius V was obviously yes, the church was running scared. There's no doubt about that, um, and 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 that is the thing which I, I I think is often underestimated that you know things I, beliefs that Christian Europe had been living by for 1500 years. You know, a, a, a cranky, not particularly well-trained German theology professor says, yeah, let's get rid of that. And then, you know, a very nasty French lawyer, John Calvin, one of the most perfectly unpleasant individuals who's ever lived in the history of living, um, says, yeah, you know, let's get, let's get rid of a whole bunch more of them. And a substantial chunk of Europe says, yeah, we should definitely get rid of that. And so... Um, I used to have occasion to explain this to students, and I would say to them, it's kind of, but this was a long time ago, and I used to say, it's kind of like if we got editorials in, you know, the New York Times saying we should shoot everybody who disagrees with the president. And so, and I, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been, not so much now. Yeah. <laughs> so so that this, this violent overthrow of long-standing principles certainly had Catholics scared. And so Pius V's reform um, was very much designed to speak to that. However, I think it needs to be you know, qualified that, that 200 year mark 
which, you know, depending on who you ask, it, it, I mean, there is something kind of a little arbitrary about it. It seems to have been chosen maybe to go back like right behind the, the, the defeat of, of, of Wycliffe. But, mm -hmm. but regardless, um, but, you know, for those who did, whose rights did have a respectable pedigree, he, you know, constructed it in such a way that every single member of every single cathedral chapter had a veto over giving up your own proper books and going over to the Roman books. It says by the unanimous consent of the of the chapter. Father Hunnick um, has written a great deal about this on his his absolutely superb blog, Father Hunnick's Mutual Enrichment. Um, so um, that being said, Pius V's reform in and of itself was extremely, extremely conservative. There is nothing about it that is, you know, turning over central rights of the um of, of the year like holy week to a committee and saying go on and make up a thing and so it is fundamentally indistinguishable from the books that immediately precede it and you know there are many many aspects of it you can trace all the way back through all of the books of the roman right as far back as we have them and so um so and, and, and so in that sense, Pius V did do exactly that. That is to say, that he said, here is the thing. If your pedigree is not 200 years, you have to take this. If it's less, if it is more than 200 years, you, you can take this. And so, um, I agree with you that these reforms, and, and, and also, by the way, this is also true of the Urban VIII um, reform. Urban VIII reformed the Roman breviary, but he did not oblige anybody else to take on, if they had their own breviary. He did not oblige anybody else to take it on. So none of the monks, Dominicans, Carthusians, Sotertians, none of them accepted that reform. St. Peter's Basilica didn't accept that reform. Um, wow, so, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, St. Peter's Basilica continued to sing. St. Peter's Basilica is so conservative, they didn't adopt the, 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 the new revision of the Psalter by that wicked modernist, St. Jerome. So oh. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> so, um, oh, they still have the, the old Psalter. That's yeah, yeah, they still they still use they still used a, a, a pre Jerome. But that's an exaggeration historically. But anyway, um, but yeah, it's true they did not accept Saint Jerome. That, that's the one with um, that's the one with um, the uh, he the Messiah has triumphed from the tree, right? That is that, that is the, included in that text. Yes. Yes. Okay. Great. That's right, the so, old school. Um, Pius, yeah. And then Pius the Twelfth himself also um, issued this new Psalter. Um, yes, on, the, PN the same Psalter, principle, right. it, Yeah, which is ghastly. Yeah, that was um, completely rejected. That wasn't even right. <laughs> so it, it, it had a brief vogue, and and as I, I've, I've written about this a number of times, they ran it as the military guys say. They ran it up the flagpole to see who would salute. People stopped saluting. They took it down. And so yes, I, I do believe that the Holy Week reform, at most, and and also the Novus Ordo, should have been proposed as an alternative, and let it let's see what goes on. But you know, this is really not the way. Things have been liturgically in in the Roman Church. Uh, in some ways, that's for the good. In some ways, it's not for the good. So, um, I mean, they did this in in, in the 1590s. Um, Pope Clement VIII imposed the pontifical of the Roman Rite on the Ambrosian Rite. So, which which I mean, they, you know, it had modifications to conform it to certain Ambrosian customs, but. Um, I, I have no doubt that this has been excessive. And then, of course, we see the fruits of it again in 1969 when the Pope says to everybody, here is a text which is radically divorced from the history of 
the liturgical tradition of the Roman Church. Here is a text which I have, you know, taken all kinds of very ancient things and chucked them in the bin. I've taken all kinds of other things and, you know, subjected them to a campaign of ideological censorship on the part of a committee of progressive Italian liturgists. And now everyone has to use this thing. And if you don't, you will be hounded out of your cathedral, you'll be hounded out of communion with the Holy See, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, but, 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 you know, I, that being said, there are very substantial differences between Pius V's reform and Paul VI's in terms of procedure. Okay. Um, now, was Paul VI really the first time that, so it's not the first time that there is this imposition of certain no. principles, certainly. No. Um, but it seems to be what you just said in terms of Pius X, mm -hmm. you mentioned at the beginning of this, that somebody, some prominent person gave a very strong critique to it, but no one hounded him from the church. Exactly. But now I understand that, is it true that John the 23rd did not observe the PN reforms of Holy Week? There, so there, there are pictures of John the 23rd celebrating Holy Week in which he's clearly doing things that are not part of the Pi and Holy Week. You can see it in the way he's um, venerating the cross, for example. And so um, I don't know if documentation, and, and then there is another one which I, I read not so long ago, but I honestly have forgotten the name, where um, it was probably published on Marate Chaley. They've done pretty good work about, about this, where um, he said to his master ceremonies, we're going to sing the Vexilla Regis. During the Good Friday ceremony, somebody pointed out to him, Holy Father, the Vexilla Regis had been taken out of the Good Friday ceremony. And he said, we're going to sing the Vexilla Regis during the Good Friday ceremony. Oh, so, I see. Okay. Um, but, you know, I mean, he's the Pope. It's his ceremony. And so, you know, there, there isn't any case to be made canonically that the Pope doesn't have the right to change his own ceremony, certainly within, within the chapel. I mean, that's right. there's, there's no case to be made for that canonically. Um, what I think is much more significant is simply the fact that many of the things which we were assured in 1955 were magnificent restorations of, of incredibly important authentic customs were walked back when the Novus Ordo came out. Um, there are many ways in which the Novus Ordo undoes the, the sort of you know literary mutilations uh, and ritual contrivances of the 1955 Holy Week reform. Um, so that for you know the famously the twelve prophecies, for example, yes, were cut down to four in a completely arbitrary and idiotic way in fifty five, and they restored some of them, not not all of them. They didn't do it as well as they could have, but there are seven in the Novus Ordo. So you know they realized, well, gosh, that was dumb, <laughs> and so they undid it. Yes, and the other, so that's probably the most conspicuous reversal in the Novus Ordo. And the other one that I think of is the Pentecost Vigil, which was just right. thrown out in 55. I don't know right. if there's any explanation. Um, and then it's, so originally it was basically, a, it was a somewhat of a repeat of the Easter Vigil. It's kind of a bookend to Paschal Tide. Yes. And so they repeat six of the, the prophecies from Easter mm -hmm. Vigil. And then yes. they have new prayers, new collects, and then a new epistle gospel. Right. in the in the Pentecost vigil but there's also baptism so it's a, this it's a similar service but in the Novus Ordo they have some form of that too I, I don't I haven't looked closely at the Novus Ordo version of the Pentecost there vigil. is a there, so there is there is a substantial difference in that um 
so, I mean, going back to a Pope called Simplicius, who was in the later decades of the fourth century, um, he says that Pentecost and Easter are the two great baptismal feasts because Peter himself baptized on, on, on Easter, uh, on, 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 on Pentecost. Right, right. Um, Pope St. Leo I says exactly the same thing when, uh, in a response to various um, bishops from Sicily, yeah, Pentecost is the baptismal feast. The baptismal rites of Pentecost are attested in every single pertinent liturgical book of the Roman Rite, going as far back as we have them. Um, there are many aspects of the baptismal rites that are also present in uh, the baptismal rites of Easter that are present in other liturgies. So um, the Trisagion chant, which the Byzantines use on Easter, they also use on Pentecost, for example. And so, um, so once again. You know, the, the argument was adduced that, well, this has become an obsolescence. We don't really do this anymore. We don't need to do this because it really is part of a very, you know, old way of doing things that doesn't apply to our times. It's not, it doesn't respond to our current pastoral needs. And so they got rid of them. Okay, now do Ember Days. Now do Rogation Days. Now do Passion Tide. Now do all the ancient Roman saints that were got it out of the hand just they just did it 14 years later now were there uh, well let me, let me ask that as a minute let me first ask was there if, if the 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 ultramontanist climate under Pius X was not so bad to the extent that you couldn't have a major criticism uh was sure. it similar in because we know that after Paul VI it was that bad there sure. was almost no one who who raised their head above sure. the uh, the parapet to get shot at in ecclesiastically. Um, was it that bad under Pius XII? Were there prominent people who criticized this or, or was it very, uh, you know, receive this or else? Um, it would, no, I, well, I would say it's neither of those things. It wasn't receive this or else in the sense that I, I don't, I don't know. I know of people who have, who, who spoke out against it. Um, the, the best known probably is a, a papal master of ceremonies named Leon Gromier who wrote this savage critique of it, and in which he is constantly, he was French, of course, and so, you know, all the, all the, all the rhetorical restraints typical of his people. Um, <laughs> he talks, he's continually denouncing les pastorelles, the pastoral people, most of whom, of course, were never pastors. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that, that, all, that's that's one of the key points right, right there. Is that they the were experts all, they were, were all, not pastors? <laughs> yeah, they were all academic liturgists, and so and 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 Gromier, And I don't say this as a criticism of him. It's not a systematic scholarly critique. It's a creed de curve because he understood that you know on the basis of completely specious scholarly reconstructions that they were hacking very deep into the bone. Um, and so you know he says, well, you know they take out the folded chasubles. Well, you know we have pictures in the catacombs of people who are serving at the mass who are clerics because they're the lower rank and wearing folded chasubles. And, and, you know, it's not that the faith lives or dies on the question of the folded chasuble, but it's the question, you know, Catholicism is a religion that is grounded in continuity. And what you are doing when you do these things is you are severing the threads of continuity. And so, and again, you are accepting the principle of, you know, here we have a thing which the church has maintained continually from the most ancient times. And now we are severing the threads and saying, well, yeah, but there was no need to do that. And, you know, the silly church just, you know, kept getting everything wrong with the liturgy. So here we are to, you know, aren't you lucky to have us on the scene to fix it all for you? 
Now, let me ask this. I know Joseph Ratzker, as I recall, I think it's in Spiritual Liturgy, he mentioned he makes mention of some reform where there were um they had to throw out some hymnography in order to get back to more scriptural basis or something like that. But my question is this, where are there, um, <clears throat> are there any good reforms that you think were a good idea in 1955? Um, well, uh, uh, okay. The, 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 the concern to make the short answer is no. <laughs> okay. Um, that is because the things that they could have, the things that, that, that could have been or potentially done well were done were were done badly. Um, I would say that if there was a genuine pastoral concern that the prayers of the Palm Sunday blessing were too long, there's one in the middle that is extremely long. Make it optional. So, uh, which was, I mean, the idea of optional things was not really on anybody's radar screen in, in, in 55 for the, for the most part. I mean, it just, just, just wasn't the way they did things. And so, um, certainly, you know, cutting the Last Supper out of the Roman Missal, which they did with, you know, clipping off the fronts of the Passions of Matthew, Mark, and Luke is an absolutely atrocious idea. And again, redone in Linovus Ordo. Um, the, the, the change to the mandatum, that is to do it in the mass, I don't think that's a terrible idea in that it is a very beautiful ceremony and it certainly would make sense to do it in a parish church. Traditionally, it had been a, a, a more between subjects in religion and their superiors. And so um, that being said, Good Friday is a complete loss. So every single change that they made is, a, again, violent overthrow of, of historical traditions. Uh, there is just nothing good about that whatsoever. Um, with the Easter Vigil, they, you know, corrected, the, they overcorrected the time. It is a ceremony for the evening. It should be done. Um, that I, I don't have any dispute with. Doing it in the night is nonsense. And that was never a thing. Um, but, and, and then the renewal of the baptismal promises is possibly the last piece of well-written Latin produced for the liturgy by the Roman ecclesiastical authorities. And so um, I disagree with Mr. Fari, Mr. Tafari's contention that this was necessary because people were forgetting what it really meant to be a Christian um, in those days. It, you know, I think an average Catholic, especially in a place like the United States, uh, also in Italy, where you know, families of you know, five, six children were not prayer at all, you would have seen the baptismal ritual many times. Um, it seems to me that, that that perhaps an invitation to the faithful attending the baptismal baptisms to you know recite the creed and the and, and the Our Father along with the priest would have achieved basically exactly the same thing. Um, but you know, apart from that, no, there really isn't anything about it that's worth saving. Now, is there? Um... <clears throat> In theory, would you say the the idea of pastoral necessity, because one factor about this is that there is a massive social change. And this is what I, I read in Yves Chiron when Bunini's in World War II and he's, he's assigned to this village parish or whatever. These Italian vigilators have just no clue what they're doing in the mass. They're just totally clueless. And it seems to me that there is something to be said for some sort of reform which would 
reconnect in, in a time where we, we've lost Christendom, we've lost mm -hmm. the the public processions in many places, not all places, mm -hmm. but sure. many places, people are just, they've been hounded into the cities, urbanization, all sorts of social changes. We've lost the fabric of, of the sort of integral social Christendom that has the liturgy of the streets, if you will. Um, is there, in theory, could you say this might be a good change if, if and only if, you know, there was this disconnect like with the basketball promises, people just were totally clueless mm -hmm. and we instituted a brand new right. We rewrote it from scratch. It got imposed on the faithful to invite them to a, a new rediscovery of this. And would you say that in theory, that could be an example of something if, if that were the case historically, that, do you understand my question? Yes, I do. Okay. okay. First of all, first of all, I would, I mean, these people are all dead now. So unfortunately we can't verify this. Aníbal Bonini was a shameless liar. So the man had, and and and, I'm, and, and that's right. not a calumny. Yes. I mean, Louis Bouillet yes. worked closely with him. We know this. You can read his book. I mean, so I, so the first thing that I would want to do would be to talk to those villagers. Um, and I'm not saying that he was necessarily lying in this case, although he has a well-documented track record of lying. But it would not surprise me if we, you know, go to heaven and, and speak to these people. We might discover that they were better educated than, than he gave them credit for. This has been a, a, a blight on the entire process of liturgical reform, is this, this, this incredibly clericalist contempt for the faithful to say that, oh, well, you know, you just can't understand that. So we're just going to have to change the liturgy for you. Eh, okay. Um, but there is a really notable shift in, in, in oh, so let, me, let, me, let me back a bit. So yes, I would say if, if there is determined to be a real pastoral necessity to do something like the renewal of the baptismal rites, yes, certainly, by all means. That being said, there is a real shift in tenor that takes place between the 19th century, you know, this, this, this societal destruction, the loss of Christendom, didn't take place in the 1940s. It took place in the 1780s. So, and the the it is certainly true that with the destruction of an, an absolutely uncountable number of, of of monasteries and canonical houses and religious houses, that yes, there was a real detachment between the faithful and the liturgy, simply because there was much less liturgy going on. Um, the person who first, you know, really set out to remedy this problem is the famous Don Prosper Garanger, the founder of the refounder of Solemn Abbey. Don Garanger takes the attitude that everything about the liturgy is is a precious treasure that we need to guard and preserve so that we can present it to the faithful, and that's why he, you know, writes this treatise where he is just taking it for granted that somebody like, you know, um, Teresa of Lisieux's parents, that was, that was their favorite spiritual reading. So, um, you know, Teresa's father was a watchmaker and his, uh, his wife um, was a lace maker. And he just takes it for granted that these ordinary tradespeople are certainly capable of rising to the level of understanding, you know, Mozarabic hymns and sequences that, you know, were in the use of the Cathedral of Amiens in the 14th century which is to say he sees it as primarily a work of education. The liturgy is here. We're gonna raise the faithful up to this level. After World War I, you really see this change 
where the attitude is that the liturgy is here, the faithful are here, there's no way we can raise the faithful up to the liturgy. So therefore we have to lower the liturgy down to the level of the faithful. And so, and that's why, for example, going back to you know, the first topic, which is the, the prayers of the blessing of the palms, that A, you know, the stupid faithful can't understand if that, that, that what this really means, the, the, the truth of it has been obscured by the church overlaying it with all these prayers. So we can't educate the faithful up to the level of understanding the meaning of those prayers, so we have to get the prayers out. So once again, just 14 years later, well, you know, the, the faithful are misled by the offertory prayers into thinking that it's like a little canon. So we have to get rid of the offertory so that they can properly understand the canon. So, because they can't be educated. So, and I, I reject this wholeheartedly. Uh, I, I agree with Dom Gerange that the liturgy is a treasure as we have received it. And that the work of this is, is, is principally about educating the faithful. But I, I reject the premise that they cannot be collectively elevated to the and, and you know, I mean, look at the disaster that has unfolded as a result of this. I mean, has there ever been a period in the history of the church when the faithful were more thoroughly detached from the liturgy? I, I very yes. much doubt it. Right. Yes. It, it seems to be very. I, I read something from, um, I think it was Dr. Carol Byrne was bringing out uh, Baudouin, I think it was, the Benedictine. Yep. And he seemed to be having this Marxist conception of the distinction between the clerics and the faithful so that the faith making this idea of lowering the liturgy yes um yes in the sense oh, that the oh go ahead no no it's just but, but remember that both was not as bad as he often represented to be okay that, that, you know he, he he also accepted the idea that the liturgy is that the liturgical movement is principally a question of education okay all right so but it seems because the weird thing though is that on the one hand they want to lower the liturgy oh instead of educating the faithful, mm -hmm. but then they also want to force the faithful to take their liturgy. And if, if they don't accept it, you know, they can't pray the rosary or whatever, or do their devotion. They, they have to be. So it, to me, that that's where like this sort of Soviet idea sort of mentality yes. comes in because it's yes. like, you, you say you're being pastoral, but then you literally rip rosaries out of little old ladies' hands in the name mm -hmm. of your pastoralism. So yes. this is like, to me, this is like a, just sort of some some Marxist frame of mind where it's like we're going to impose something instead of educating people to liberate them from their their uh, second class status as fa lay faithful who are yes you know absolutely. silent observers. But yes. then if if you still want to pray in your own way or whatever, we're going to force it on you now. Yes. So it's so, so um, I, let me let me get a question. Or do you have any comments on that? Well, I just uh, want to, and so yeah. just to add one thing is that okay. But but that being said, okay, there are many 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 aspects of the 1955 Holy Week reform in specific terms, which simply do not have any justification in in in, in that regard. There is no justification on a pastoral level for doing them. So um, taking out the synoptic accounts of the Last Supper, for example. So where the beginnings, uh, I, I mentioned earlier, that the beginnings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are clipped off. Those passages are not used anywhere else in the world, right? So we delete the synoptic accounts from of, of the Last Supper from our way of celebrating the week in which the Last Supper 
happened, the Roman church, like all churches, is, is, is goes to tremendous lengths to, to, to make sure that we present this in the context of the passion understood in the broadest terms from Palm Sunday to the resurrection, the entire passio of the Lord. So how, how are you on a pastoral level presenting this to the faithful in a better way by removing the accounts, the gospel accounts of this crucial event from the passions? And so I just don't see how that's justifiable in any level. Now, what about the read? What okay. about the read play into this? <laughs> the read? Yeah, the read, the, the read goes back to Claude de Vere, that okay. the, the, so um, it is true, I mean, the, the, and again, I, mean, I, I don't want to be, you know, beating up on Mr. Tafari, but his account of this is completely erroneous. And so, Paschal candles were very often set up in extremely large stands. So, um, and then you have the reed, which the, so the, the, the Paschal candle is put into the stand before the fire, before the ceremony begins. And so, um, the most famous example of this is at the Church of St. Paul outside the walls in Rome, where they have this absolutely spectacular Romanesque candlestick for the Paschal candle, which is like 25 feet tall. And so um, the reed is a very slender thing. It's easy to carry. And so somebody like Claude de Vere in his so-called rational critique of liturgical symbolism would say, well, obviously it was because it's easier to carry the reed than to carry the Paschal candle. And so there is absolutely no source that attests to any of the rigmarole which they introduced in 55, where the reed is ditched, the Paschal candle is prepared outside and then carried in and put into its thing. And, and you know, we've all seen, you know, comical videos of, you know, people picking up the Paschal candle and a giant wave of wax, you know, splashes all over you. Um, there's a very funny one, which I put on NLM some time ago of the Paschal candle falling into the baptismal font. That's oh, a, no. Yeah, it's a great idea. But, um, but again, you know, it's the same idea. And, and, and so, and of course, then the reed had like, you know, the three branches. Okay. So, Claude de Vere and people following in his wake would say, well, you know, that was just to make sure that they had enough lights and if one of them blew out, well, Pascal candles blow out. But, but laying that aside, when you claim that the symbolism that it represents the Holy Trinity is totally arbitrary, okay, well, why is that thing in three arbitrary and some other thing that occurs in three not arbitrary? So, um, and, and again, what you're doing is accepting the principle of how the church allowed the proper symbolism. So, you know, in, in his interview with you, Mr. Tofari says that, you know, that the reed obscured the true symbolism of the Paschal candle representing Christ. Again, Martin Luther could not have said it better that here we have the proper symbolism, which is buried under the rites which the church had instituted and observed for centuries and centuries and centuries and which no one had ever thought of or were a problem. And now all of a sudden we discover, look, the real symbolism is buried. And so we need to unbury it. Great. So now it's do the Yeah, exactly. So it sounds like we, we've gotten down some basic principles, some basic criteria that you've chiseled out here. Um, one, Every every liturgical change needs to be based on historical truth and good scholarship. That's yes. one thing. It can't be somebody just making it up. 
And if somebody makes a, a sort of an error in scholarship, that needs to be corrected as well. If we made a huge change based on one thing for like the facing towards the people is a conspicuous example of that. Um, but also um, you started, you said that the Garanger principle of the preciousness of every liturgical custom, whether or not there's an explanation for it mm -hmm. uh, must be preserved and the faithful must be brought and educated up to it. Um, but you also said you conceded that certainly in theory, there could be uh, an ex nihilo creation of a right somewhere. So just for the reason of a, a pastoral necessity. So it seems, it seems like those are a lot of balancing principles, uh, but yes. there's a lot, there's disagreement when you have a disagreement on the first principle with historical cases, historical scholarship, and scholars also disagree about various things too. So certainly um, I wanted to get a few questions. Um, sure. We've got uh, father John Brown SJ says, what is the way forward? Is it widely allowing the TLM then improvements through attrition? Is it stamping out the Novus Ordo abuses? Is it a new Novus Ordo from the top? What are your thoughts on the way forward? There's also a-, a can, can you leave that up second for reference? Oh Yeah, there's a, a related question is, is how do we start celebrating the pre-55 in our parishes? I know the FSSP isn't allowed, my FSSP, but the ICKSP can. So what is the way forward? What are your thoughts on the future? My answer is yes. It's all of those things. <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, that that- even if we assume nothing but the best possible intentions on, upon the, the, on the part of the creators and promulgators of the Novus Ordo, obviously that's a very broad assumption. But even if we assume this, okay, I don't see how we can reasonably deny that the Novus Ordo has been devoured by a culture of liturgical decadence and, 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 and neglect. And so this is better in many places than better in some places than others. Okay, I mean, I I, I have I recently attended uh, an ordination in the New Right, and um, some of the music was extremely lovely. And so Italy is a wasteland. Um, there are a handful of churches where they still cultivate decent music. Mostly, Italy is liturgically the service of Mars. Um, lots of dust, not much air, not much light. So. Um, so it is therefore necessary for the traditional right to continue in existence to provide a model and a and a future correction for that. And Pope Benedict's you know vision, I, I agree entirely with Pope Benedict's vision that the traditional right needs to continue to exist. Not only because you know a church that that that, that mutilates its own roots has no future. Um, you know, there, there's an interesting thing I, I learned a long time ago. That in in rabbinic Hebrew, the, the the Hebrew of the Mishnah and various other early rabbinical texts, that they have a metaphorical expression for apostatize, which means to mutilate the sheets, which is just to cut up your or cut up your roots. So, which is really what you're effectively doing. And I don't mean to say the Novus Ordo is an act of apostasy, but you are you are cutting yourself off from your past means cutting yourself off from any future. So, um, so the Novus Ordo has to have the traditional mass next to it to balance. Um, yes, there needs to be a rigorous extirpation of abuses of the Novus Ordo. That is simply not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, Rome hasn't moved a finger in 60 years to really deal with this effectively. And then, yes, the third thing is um, that, that there are many things that could be done to fix the Novus Ordo um, which would, I think, make a huge improvement. Um, just to give a very simple example, delete the fourth canon. It's useless. No one uses it anyway. Um, delete all other canons promulgated by local 
Episcopal conferences simply say they can't be used, they're invalid if you use them, you're excommunicated. Um, and then forbid the use of Eucharistic prayer too on Sundays. So, because, you know, Eucharistic prayer too from the, you know, we're all phenomenologists now. And so, you know, blink it and you miss the, blink and you miss the consecration. So simply don't allow the use of it on Sundays and the vast majority of Catholics will not be attending a mass in which the consecration happens like that. So, um, so there is a huge amount that can be done in that way. Um, you know, and then obviously, you know, that's a program for the future. It's not gonna happen now, <laughs> especially now, now. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, I see that as the way forward. Excellent. Um, Michael says, could Mr. DePippo speak more about the pre-55 rubrics, festal ranks, feasts, and how they compare to the 62 and the rationale behind the 55 There's also the octaves. So there's a number of other reforms. Any other sure. comments okay. on um, those things? Uh, to do that very broadly, because, and to me, to do the whole thing, we'll be here till, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon. Sorry, could, could you just put that back up so I can see? Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, to do that very, very broadly, okay. Um, the rubrics, per se, of the books before Pius XII started modifying them are in many ways too complicated, and, and, and a simplification would certainly be in, in order. Much of that complication actually comes from Pius X's reform. It wasn't particularly old when they got rid of it. And so um, you see this in the Missal where the rubric in front of the prefaces in pre-Pius X editions is, is, is very much shorter than the ones that, that he uh, promulgated. And so um, the reason why 1955 is a watershed is that 1955 is the first time that we begin not just changing, but actually mutilating liturgical texts specifically for the sake of the rubrics. That is to say, it's no longer the rubrics that are taking care of the text. The text is taking care of the rubrics so that they simply declare, because the rules about how octaves were arranged, for example, were very complicated. Under Pius X, I mean, he made them more complicated. And therefore, in order to spare priests the necessity of calculating them all or constantly consulting in order, they just cut them all out. And so, I mean, this is a stupid impoverishment. You know, not that every single octave that was in use needs to be kept, but, you know, the octave of Pentecost is as old as the Roman, right? It's actually older because it's in the Old Testament. Um, the, right, that's true. You know, the octave of Peter and Paul at St. Lawrence, I mean, these are in every single book of the Roman, right, that we have as far back as we have them, that sort of thing. Um, I, should say, I would probably qualify that almost because there is one exception. So, um, but it's more the principle, again, that now we're changing the texts in order to, for the benefit of the rubrics. That's the reason why 55 is a watershed. Whatever you want to say about the earlier reforms, they were all based on caring for the text itself. You can argue that one did it better and one did it worse, but you know the 55 reform is careless and so. The ranking of feasts was also certainly too complicated. And, you know, and again, that was exacerbated by Pius X's reform. Pius V had three ranks of feasts. And so, but, but you know, people don't introduce complexity into a system for the sake of complexity. They introduce it because they see a, a need to, to, to do something. So, and then, you know, 62, both the Breviary and the Missal are basically there to clean up the dog's breakfast left behind by the reform of 55, which was very badly conceived. And, and Rome was bombarded with requests for clarification. So 62 is basically an attempt to 
um, for the most part, to, to, to clean up that mess. And so, but, you know, and again, I'll add one other point about that is that in the 1960 reform of the, technically we, we say 62 because it was the typical edition since technically 1960 came out. Almost all of the feasts that are specifically feasts about miracles are removed from the calendar. So we get rid of the finding of the cross, uh, St. John at the Latin Gate, the apparition of St. Michael and Mount Gargano, the finding of St. Stephen's body, um, the stigma of St. Francis, all of the miracle feasts are ditched. And then nine years later, as Father Anthony Saccada, who was unfortunately said of our contest, but as he pointed out in a, in a you know, very good study, that then they took out all the references to miracles, even in the saints that they kept. So, you know, that where St. Francis Xavier previously in his original prayer converted the Indies by his miracles and preaching, in the Novus Ordo, he does it just by his preaching. Right. So, you know, it's again, the foundation's already laid. Well, I, I didn't know that about the 62 missile taking out those. I, I remember the, the May 3rd finding the cross feast. Mm -hmm. um, that's interesting. Um, right. I, it looks like we're, we don't have any more questions. I want to ask one final question. Sure. Uh, because I, I've, for many years, I've been a lover, not always a faithful devotee, but always a lover of the Benedictine office that okay. um, uh, I'm not really sure where, where this actually came from, but it has all of the old school, like the, as you said, the Laudate Psalms, but it mm -hmm. also has various repetitions. Like you play, play Psalm three at the beginning of Matins, right. Psalm 66 at the beginning of Lauds, Psalm 50, every single Lauds. And I never even encountered the Roman Brivier until much later. And when I, when I even looked at the Pius X Brivier, I was like, wow, this is really totally different than what I'm used to. Um, now I, I noticed, I didn't hold, read that your essay, but you had something on new liturgical movement somewhat recently where you had a, some qualified defense of this Pius X Brevier. Yes. Can you comment at all on that um, as what are your thoughts comparing that particular Elquin Reed says that th this is this is really this is he, he sees that as sort of the water another watershed moment because okay. it's the one where sure. Pius X jettisons a bunch of ancient tradition that you mentioned before on based solely on his own authority um, He's, he calls it a root and branch reform in, in a pejorative sense, mm -hmm. uh, sort of ripping out these roots like you're kind of alluding right. to before. So can you comment lastly on the Pius X breviary? What are your thoughts sure. on that? So what Pius X, basically, in the way the historical system, and, and it is incredibly ancient, there's no doubt about that. Okay. Uh, the way the system was arranged is that you had one way of arranging the Psalms for Sundays and ferias in which matins was very long. And so 18 Psalms on uh, Sunday, 12 on, um, on the burial days. And then you had the same Psalms, basically Psalm 118, the, the, the very, very long one, 176 ways to say to the law, I love you. It's cut up into 22, it's, it's cut up into 11 pieces and spread out through prime to six and no. This is again, incredibly ancient to do the Psalm every single day. Um, it's also in the Byzantine right. Um, so the way the way the system was designed is that then feasts have their own psalmody, um, which which displaces the psalms of matins. And the system was designed in, in a period in which there were not all that many saints days. So um, by Pius X's time, 
the number of saints' days had increased very, very considerably, so that the psalms of the of the ordinary day were never used, um, and that's why you, know, you will often see um, breviaries of the sort of later 19th century, particularly when they started using industrial paper that picked up a lot of oil from the fingers. You'll see that there are certain sections of the breviary like the, the Psalms of, of, of Monster Sex and Known and Compton, where you'll often see like these incredible stains. <laughs> I have I have one like, on that shelf behind me. And so, and then you'll see other parts of it where the pages are absolutely pristine because they were never used. Uh, okay. And so, so what he did was he rearranged the Psalter in a different order, which was a novelty. There's no, there's no disputing that fact. This rearrangement was a novelty and then but he also rearranged the degree to which it was applied so that it was used on more days. The, the, the ordinary Psalms of the, of the day were used on more days than they would have been previously. Um, and so the, the goal was that you, the theoretical goal was that you would say all of the Psalms within a week. The reality is that you generally say all of the Psalms within two weeks and, and many of them are repeated within that two week period. And so, but the difference is that the part that he reformed was an, was effectively an obsolescence because it wasn't being used anymore. And so, and I, I don't say, and I, I mean, I said this in that article, I don't say that everything about the reform was done as well as it could have been or should have been. And there are certainly aspects of it which are not awesome. But it was not done on the, on the same premises that the old one is too complicated, that the faithful don't participate, that the church had, you know, for a long time, he doesn't say that this custom was wrong. He said that, you know, things have evolved. So, but I mean, Alcuin Reed is not incorrect in stating that it, it was a watershed in the, in the sense that, that a custom which had been in use for a very, very long time was then, you know, sort of just... Or there's a, but had been in use, but was no longer really in use all that much, was 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 wiped away by papal fiat. And so, um, but I mean, again, you know, I mean, Pius V had done something very similar with the matins reform, with the matins readings, which were completely reformed in his time. It did not open up a a, a you know swift and mighty torrent of other reforms. So I I, I suspect that Pius X would have, have have sort of seen his in the same light that we're reforming a part of the thing that has become obsolete and you know he talks about future reforms but he certainly would not have imagined them to be as as as, as radical and as contrived as the 55 holy reform excellent yeah i it certainly is if it's come to a point where we're not reciting the whole psalter every single week anymore right. That's certainly an effort to change something in order to restore. You're so, you, so you are restoring some ancient custom by trying to restore this, the weekly Psalter. Yes. But in the process, some things were dropped also. Yes. Um, well, any final thoughts? I, I wanted to thank you, um, Gregory, because I, I like to do this type of controversy outside of Holy Week. Because sure. Holy sure. Week, it's great to just focus on prayer and Holy Week. And then we can just debate this later. So um, I know that... Uh, Mr. Tafari agreed with that sentiment, and we we certainly want to, uh, in in the midst of our disagreements, we should all try to cultivate a, a true spirit of the true spirit of Holy Week, which of sure. course is uniting with the passion of our Lord. Um, so, do you have any final comments for us about uh, Holy Week liturgy in general? 
Um, well, okay, so I would I would say that if if people have further questions about this sort of thing, uh, I have a publicly available email address on the website. So they're certainly welcome to send me questions. Um, I have a sort of recently taken on a new job, which is making me make, made me quite busy. Did I just say making? That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's made me quite busy. <laughs> and so it may take me a while to get back to you, but I will eventually try to get back to you. Um, when I get back to you, I will most likely send you a link to an article that I've already written about this topic. I have done extensive analyses of these things, which are available. They'll come up in the search box on NLM. Um, but and I would say that you know you also don't have to take my word for it because I I will if if the sources are not readily available or if you don't know what they are I will be happy to tell you what they are I mean very often I've linked within them um, but you know I, and again I would just give one incredibly simple example which is that you know one of the prophecies that was taken out of the Easter Vigil which is Noah and the Ark. You know, just go read the Church Fathers, and go, go read the Bible, you'll see it in the first epistle of St. Peter, and then you'll see it in the Church Fathers where they talk about Noah and the eight people on the ark with him as a symbol of the members of the church. Eight speaks to the eight-day cycle, Palm Sunday, back to uh, Easter Sunday. The ark is a symbol of the church. So that when you take that reading out of the Easter Vigil, you know, you are you're cutting these very, very deep roots. Don't take my word for it. Go read the Church Fathers. You know, newadvent.com has a work has a huge amount of, of of them free to read in, in you know pretty decent translations. You'll see this for yourself. Um and 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 so as I said, just don't take don't take my word for it. I, I I will be happy to provide you with the sources which demonstrate the radical lack of continuity between the 55-week reform and its predecessors. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, Gregory. Let's um, offer up a Hail Mary then for the Certainly. ultimate, the, the intention of, of once again, the intention of Holy Week, of Holy Week. so um, that we can all participate next Holy Week uh, in the true spirit of Holy Week and um, that in our, in our given parish context, we can um, have the best liturgy we can possible. So thank you for your good work, Greg. Go to newliturgicalmovement.com. You can search for all of these things. And and as Gregory said, you can contact him directly. So, all right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus is King. <laughs>